1: Strength and greatness reside at the core of your being, regardless of any circumstances that are happening in your life. It can be so easy to lose touch with that reality, especially in the midst of challenges. You are not alone. No matter what challenges you are facing in your life or with those closest to you, please remember that you have inner resources to help you connect to that still, small voice that resides at your core. A voice that, if you let it, can help you find the peace and strength, not only to survive, but to thrive. Valeria interviews Lisa Honig Buxbaum, the author of Soaring into Strength, Love Transcends Pain. Author, social entrepreneur, and positive psychology thought leader, Lisa is a passionary, a visionary driven by great passion and action. An intuitive healer, well-loved inspirational speaker, and expert workshop leader and facilitator, Lisa has shared her wisdom with thousands of people throughout the world. Three experiences with death and illness in her family during a 10-month period motivated her to launch Soaring Words, a not-for-profit organization devoted to inspiring children, families, adults seniors, and healthcare professionals to take active roles in self-healing to experience greater physical, emotional, and mental well-being. Since 2000, Lisa has shared soaring words soaring into strength-positive health initiatives with more than 500,000 people. Audiences around the world have resonated with her candor, wisdom, and biting humor as she shared her personal tragedies and triumphs as a way to motivate others during difficult times. Lisa graduated with honors from the University of Pennsylvania, holds an MBA in marketing from Columbia University Graduate School of Business and a Masters of Applied Positive Psychology, MAPP, from the University of Pennsylvania. She has a certificate in narrative medicine from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and a certificate from the American Institute of Mental Imagery. Lisa is president-elect of the International Positive Psychology Association's, IPPA, Health and Well-Being Division, is on the advisory board of the Global Positive Health Initiative, and also serves on the board of the Coincidence Project. She's been featured as an expert on ABC News, Fortune Small Business, USA Today, Delta Sky Magazine, and CEO to Watch in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Lisa was a columnist for Inc. Magazine, she was the non-celebrity winner for the Lives That Make a Difference Award from A&E Television Networks and won a National Mothering That Works Award from Working Mother Media. She was inducted into the YMCA Academy of Women Achievers Hall of Fame. She was on the board of Advertising Women of New York, the leading organization for executive women in communications, board of directors of the New York Women's Agenda, board of the Alumni Committee for Columbia University Graduate School of Business. And the advisory board for the Center for Business Women's Research in Washington, D.C. Meet Lisa at soaringintostrength.com. Here's the interview with Lisa Honig Buxbaum.
0: In your own words, who is Lisa Honig Booksbound?
2: First of all, Valeria, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Um, I like to think of myself as um, a compassionate, loving human being. And then uh, layered on that is all the wonderful different experiences and opportunities that I've grown towards throughout my life. I think that we're constantly evolving and growing if we're fortunate enough to be in an environment and a loving space that allows us to do that, where our basic needs, such as you know, food, comfort, and shelter are taken care of, and our emotional needs are being tended to and, and fortified. Uh, so I, I consider myself a passionary, mm, a visionary of yeah. uh-huh. great passion and action and where I've put that action and attention is to being a social entrepreneur and to being an author and an inspirational speaker and a positive psychology uh, thought leader. And at the end of the day, the people who know or love me know that I show up and I'm really there for them. So authenticity, integrity, those are really foundational cornerstones of what makes me Lisa. And I think that it's a beautiful, uh, multi-textured way to go through life.
0: How do you define love today?
2: Sure. So before I define love, I'm going to define what I'm not speaking about. Of course, there's romantic love and sexual love. And what I'm talking about is what I would just say more a pure love, which could be uh, self-love, parental child love, filial love and agape, love for strangers, and then just love and appreciation for being in the moment and being alive right here, right now. And um, in earlier decades of my life, love was considered soft and fluffy. So when I'm talking about love, I'm not talking about Valentine's Day, cards and chocolate. Um, I'm talking about the ability to be kind and tender to ourselves which isn't something soft it actually takes a lot of strength when we make mistakes because we're all perfectly imperfect and when we have setbacks or disappointments to just talk to ourselves in that loving gentle way that we would perhaps comfort a young child or a person who's infirm and just have that be authentic And to say, you know, you gave it your best, or tomorrow is another day, but Kristen Neff, who's one of my positive psychology uh, mentors and role models, she uh, is the world expert on self-compassion. And I think really in order to love deeply, meaningfully, and fully in a healthy way, we must put some attention and energy towards loving ourselves because at the end of the day, we're always with ourselves, and the better relationship we have with ourselves, and the better capacity we have to extend love and energy and positivity to other people. So I think that our vulnerability is our strength, and I think that self-care is health care, but radical self- Care isn't narcissistic or selfish. Uh, I love to come up with words. I'm the soaring words <laughs> lady. So one <laughs> yeah. of the words I came up with uh, about ten years ago was self-full instead of selfish. If we're self-full, then we can turn that attention towards giving ourselves and feeding ourselves love and support. So for some, for me, that means like four or five nights a week I take. A candlelit bath at the end of a long day or in the morning I go swimming six days a week because that's when I feel really energized and calm and ready to start another action-packed day. So many people have different ways of showing love to others or to themselves but if you just think about what are the things that light you up and give you joy that are nutritive and nourishing those are some of the ways that you can love yourself. And then also looking at person activity fit. What are the things that the children or the adults or the friends around you need? It's it's showing up authentically as your full self, but in a way that is going to be of service to the other person too. So it's not about people pleasing and contorting yourself into a pretzel to be a chameleon or do different things for every person you meet. It's about authentically being your best possible self, but also helping inspire people to fulfill their needs and to share their best possible selves with themselves and with others.
0: It sounds like balance to me when I hear this dance between self-love and loving others at the same time. That comes with wisdom. For me, it has been establishing boundaries. I've been very bad at it. And it's still work to not feel guilty when I say no to Mm -hmm. others. So that is interesting how... It's a practice, right, Lisa? Self love, as you speak. It's not something a destination that we arrive at, and and that's it, and that's the place that we live from. It f- feels that way, of course, but it seems like we are we are always learning how to grow and evolve within that um, the realm of self love.
2: Sure, I wanted to just pick up on two important things you said about boundaries. One of my favorite expressions is no is a complete sentence. (laughs) Yes, I like that. I need to hear that. Guilt guilt, guilt is just such a pernicious emotion. Um, I think a lot of times people confuse guilt. um, Like, for example, as I said earlier, as a perfectly imperfect human being, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. We're going to disappoint ourselves or other people. But if we can look at our lives through the prism of being able to say authentically, I'm sorry, that wasn't my intention, or I'm sorry, I didn't, what have you. I think being able to apologize is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. Yes. And guilt, which sometimes people associate with that or these little like Games of like, you know, sabotage or manipulation. Guilt is just a one way trip to disappointment. So I don't really want to accept your guilt and I don't want to be too harsh on myself, which isn't saying I'm taking myself off the hook, but I answer to God. I answer to myself. I'm open to being open. But one of the things I really don't, uh, it really makes me shudder. And you touched on it as well is. When I go to the gym 6 days a week, I'm going to my locker, I'm, you know, going to go to the work on the elliptical and go swimming and and women are saying like, "Boom boom boom. I'm sorry. I'm sorry." And and I'm looking at them. What are you sorry about? I just walked by you to get to a locker. I didn't, you know, barge into you, you didn't barge into me, but they're always apologizing. So just apologizing for taking up space. So I I think that um when we have awareness of how we're feeling and feeling all of our feelings, it's a great opportunity to say, what's underneath that? Why, why am I guilt tripping myself or why am I always feeling less than? And if you can sit with that really painful feeling, then you have a chance to understand what triggered that feeling or what's historical or hysterical Mm -hmm. about that then then you have a chance to make better choices and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book I wanted to take all the wonderful experiences of growing up in a loving supportive funny zany poignant Mm -hmm. uh suburban lifestyle you know life Mm -hmm, as a child and including the not so happy slappy happy wonderful rosy stories like that my brother was seriously ill with asthma from a very young age, I knew what it was like to have a a family member who had a catastrophic illness. You know, sometimes my parents would have to carry him to the car and dash off to the doctor or the hospital because his inhaler wasn't working. He was bullied mercilessly. And I talk about, you know, being that vigilant second mother, bossy big sister but then later on in my life, when there was a trifecta of trauma and things were happening, uh, again, sometimes, uh, things went really well and, and some of the stories didn't end up, you know, with happy endings that were tightly wrapped with a beautiful taffeta ribbon. But what I found was that, um, having faith and having a positive outlook and really holding on to myself and my loved ones enabled me to come through this trifecta of trauma. And my goal in writing this book, Soaring Into Strength, Love Transcends Pain, is to say to everyone from all walks of life, no matter what you're going through, setbacks, trauma, or challenges, you are much stronger than you can imagine. And here's what happened in my life. And I hope that the stories inspire people to look around them. Who are the strangers or the kind people that are right there next to them to support them? And what are the things that they've done in their life when things were really trying, when they were at the bottom of the bottom? And how did they take the next right step? How did they endure? And a lot of times when things are super painful, people stuff those feelings and don't want to look at it but when we could look at it through the lens of someone else's experience it's a little less triggering for us and and that's what i'm getting from thousands of people and strangers and at book readings and at events like this that people say wow i never realized that there were many positive things that were swirling around when these Really difficult or catastrophic things were happening, and it's helping people to reframe so that they could take active roles in their physical, emotional, and mental well-being.
0: What makes some of us more resilient and emotionally stronger than others?
2: Sure. Well, it's not what people think. Um, there's a lot of studies, you know, in the scientific world, the positive psychology world is it socioeconomic status, is it zip code, is it, you know, all those things, and the truth is that the most important compelling factor over decades of measuring people's lives is the presence of one caring, loving adult when you're a child or an adult, and again, it could be a stranger, it could be the school crossing guard, (laughs) all those years you were going through a really traumatic time when you were a young child. It could be a coworker at work. It could be a neighbor. So I think that uh, we're not necessarily born resilient, but we can learn how to be resilient. And Dr. Angela Duckworth, who's a leading expert in the world in grit and resiliency, her definition talks about having an intention to accomplish goals that are difficult And having the perseverance and commitment to follow those through. So that's so being resilient. It's you're not going to be measuring your resilience or feeling especially resilient in those times when you're on top of the world, where everything in your social life and your family life and your career, your purpose driven life is going well. Resilience is an, an attribute that's called upon. Exactly when times get tough. And like any muscle, it can be strengthened by using it more. I think a companion to resilience is a sense of agency. So, of course, everyone's heard of the stories when there's a bystander on the sidewalk and, you know, a child, a young child or an older person is, you know, hit by a car. And the stories of people lifting the car up you know, to get the person out. And it it sounds like something, you know, from Ripley's Believe It or Not, or almost too like an urban legend. But there are verified examples of this. So that's a very extreme example. On a less uh, dramatic example, um, a few days ago, I was in the pool, and I heard a man in his 50s uh, screaming very loudly, which isn't sort of what you hear at 7:30 in the morning. And there was a young child who clearly was a swimmer, and he was screaming at her in a very abusive way. I noted it. And then I walked, you know, to put my towel down, put my goggles on, and go for my swim. But it kept persisting. And uh, you know, Ellie Wiesel said the road to Auschwitz was paved with indifference. So being that person. I'm not God, I'm not playing God, but I saw something that got my intuition and and got the hairs on the back of my neck to stand up at attention and say, something's very wrong here. And the good news was that it was happening in a public place, because a lot of times this kind of abuse happens in private when no one else would be a witness. But the bad news was it was happening. So when I went to the locker, there were women and they were talking about what had happened and they I overheard their conversation, and they were saying that they'd seen this many times. So I took it upon myself to reach out to the director of the, the health club, the community center, and aware make her aware of the situation. And she thanked me because, you know, this is a could be potentially life-threatening situation. That's what I mean by having this sense of agency. I didn't say, ah, you know, let me just swim. That was kind of annoying. I, I took action I think I took appropriate uh, action that was responsible, that had boundaries. I didn't go up and start cursing at the guy. I didn't intervene that way. But I, I think I did something that was useful, and it also gave me a sense that I did my piece. And because I also reached out to the executive director of the community center, she is reaching out to the lifeguards and they are on it. And that's more appropriate because if, for example, child services would need to be called or someone would need to record it on their cell phone, it's appropriate for them to do it as opposed to me in this case, when they have all those other professionals there. So that's kind of a a long example, but I think it's a very small example that could have a very large ripple effect. And it's also very specific to demonstrate these notions of agency, that we all have control. We can't control what happens in our life to ourselves. We can't control what we will or won't see. We have a big election coming up tomorrow, and we cannot control the results of that. But we can control how we can respond to these things with a sense of ecumenity, which is trying to tap into our center, our balance, to to drink lots of water, to get a good night's sleep, to talk to people who are active, constructive listeners, to be that healing presence for other people who might be struggling, to just try to return to calm because I'm sure you very well know from hearing your podcasts, if we're always in this heightened state of alert, if we're always catastrophizing about everything, And believe me, there's a lot of things in the world that are very troubling that we could catastrophize about. That is doing a lot of damage to our physical bodies. It's doing a lot of damage to our emotional state to be constantly on this high vigilant survival, red alert, red alert. And also mentally, it's just going to really uh, wreak havoc on our mental well-being as well.
0: Yeah, we need to uh, just to know about everything you speak about, but to be reminded too. That's amazing how how easy it is to forget, to be calm, to just stay present. It's an ongoing practice from my experience.
2: You reminded me something um, when you said it's so easy to forget. And uh, that's actually pretty much the language I used in the last paragraph in why I wrote this book. So if I could, if you don't mind, I'd love yeah, to just read that because yes, it's really just building on what you just so eloquently said. I wrote I wrote this book because I want you to know that you're not alone. No matter what challenges you are facing in your life or with those closest to you, please remember that you have inner resources to help you connect to that still small voice that resides at your core, a voice that, if you let it, can help you find the peace and strength not only to survive, but to thrive. It's so easy to lose touch with yourself and your unique strengths when the weight of illness threatens to pull you down. So relax and spend a little time with me. The Mishnah, the ancient commentary on the Torah says, words from the heart enter the heart. And I hope that my stories of transformation fill you with a sense of gratitude, wonder, hope, and inspiration to activate your ability to never give up. I'm sending you strength and love.
0: It's beautiful. That's interesting that you read this because part of that I picked for the intro of this episode because it's it's (laughs) truly beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, it's right there. Strong (laughs)
2: synchronistic connection.
0: I'd love to for you to talk to me a bit more. Perhaps you did touch on that, and also you write about it in your book. You mentioned God. So, what is God to you, and what are your spiritual practices these days, Lisa?
2: Sure, so uh, I was born Jewish, and raised you know, in a loving conservative Jewish home. Yeah. Uh, three days a week I went to Hebrew school, after public school I had a bat mitzvah, which is the coming of age ceremony at age 13. And I was very happy, and then when I was a teenager, I asked if I could go to some classes, where they were talking about philosophy and what is God and what does it mean to live a good life. And so I've always lived my faith. And then I married someone that I met on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. At, yeah. um, <laughs> and that story's in the book. And he, he was from a much more observant family. But soul to soul, I had found my besheret, my soulmate. So in t- inside, you know, I felt that we were really Meant to be. So for me, what it means is that I practice my brand of spiritual practice, which is lighting Shabbat candles Friday night and taking that 24, 25 hours to not be multitasking, not have my cell phone on, to just be with family, to appreciate having, you know, the meal together to go to synagogue and be singing and praying with other people. And I am very much a humanist, which means that I recognize the divinity, the beauty, the just humanity in each and every person, and in the trees and in nature and in the ocean and the sky. But I think that religion has been perverted to become really like a a curse word. And so much evil and violence has been perpetrated in the name of religion. And my response to that is to live my faith fully, uh, not wear it on my sleeve, not to meet people where they are. For some people, God is a very traumatic concept, and they're atheist or they're agnostic or they had... Very difficult experiences with organized religion. So, you could talk about higher power, uh, life force, uh, just, you know, being connected and present. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about the great fallacy that we're disconnected from each other instead of the fact that we all are very much connected to each other. It comes down to uh, the one sentence summary of all the Jewish teachings in the Torah, which is love your neighbor as yourself, which gets back to having that self-love and then having that love radiate out to others. So when I was looking for a theme line for the book, I knew that Soaring into Strength was the title. After we finished the final, final, final edits and we were ready to to print the books and, and have it be published, the theme line really was love transcends pain, that throughout it all, knowing that there is something larger than our than ourselves gives us the ability to hold on to hope and to bring meaning and purpose to our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That was my next question about the purpose of suffering and the purpose of the human experience.
2: Sure, so, I'd love yeah, to answer please. that. Please,
0: yeah, please.
2: <laughs> so I think, one of my favorite quotations is the purpose of life is to lead a life of purpose. And in fact, that's, I, I bought that as a little um, saying and it's sitting on the night table, uh, actually on my husband's night table. Cause he liked it. And, and I, I shared it with him. I think that, as I said a moment ago, we can't choose what happens to us. And but when the trifecta of trauma happened in my life and my only sibling and beloved baby brother died suddenly of an asthma induced heart attack at age 35 and I got the phone call at four o'clock in the morning and had to tell my parents three hours later, the sentence that never came out of my mouth was, why me, why him, why us? Instead, I did not want my life to be defined by loss hatred anger how many siblings do you have how many nieces and nephews do you have like I could have become very bitter and very tragic but I felt instead that I had 35 years with my brother as his big sister I was two years older and we had no loose ends we were good my two sons were like his children because he hadn't started a family on his own and I decided that my life was going to be defined by those positive gifts and the positive experience we had rather than, you know, really turning into a bitter, angry person. And fortunately, my parents, because there's really no greater loss than losing a child, my parents also, they went to the weddings and the baby namings and the happy occasions in their friends, children's lives. And they showed up in a way that, I mean, it was incredibly difficult for them. And when they went home, I'm sure they cried on their pillows, but they showed up. And when they walked into a room, they wanted to be loved and held and interacting with people, not having all the conversation stop and not having everyone look at us like charity cases. So I think Uh, My friend and mentor and colleague, Dr. Richard Tedeschi, he and Dr. Lawrence Calhoun are the two pioneering scientists that coined the term post-traumatic growth. Everyone's heard of post-traumatic stress. Usually you think about it with soldiers returning from combat, people who've gone through incredible traumas, uh, are triggered, and they suffer from PTSD. But what most people don't know is that 67% of people who go through trauma actually experience something called post-traumatic growth. And Dr. Tedeschi and Calhoun are very specific, as am I. Nobody wishes for trauma to befall themselves or other people. No one wishes for bad things to happen. And it's not a contest. You know, when you hear about someone who has some kind of ailment or illness or setback that you're like, oh, well, let me, if you think that's bad, let me tell you that. <laughs> yes, Which, by the way, uh, people do that all the time. I call it like the can you top this Olympics by yeah. <laughs> saying well-intentioned I... <laughs> things that are actually really, really harmful. But in terms of the purpose of suffering and post-traumatic growth, what Calhoun and Tedeschi noted in their research is that people experience A heightened appreciation of relationships, things they perhaps had taken for granted before. A a renewed sense of awe and wonder with the sunset, with the rainbow, with having a drink of water, with being able to walk again. Um, they have a, a calling or they, they discover their purpose and oftentimes make radical life changes because of the suffering or trauma that they just went through. So those are just 3 of the many things that could come up of that and I think again while no one wishes for perp- uh while no one wishes for suffering or trauma to befall ourselves it is inevitable that we will not get through this life without some degree of setback, challenge, trauma, grief that's part of the human condition. But if we can look to it as a teacher, if we can embrace it with ecumenity and not become a victim and not become reified where we then define our whole self, our whole identity as the person who lost her brother, the person who's a cancer survivor, the person who fill in the blank, the person who grew up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, the person who didn't Um, grow up in the ethnicity or the racial identity that is, you know, the one that has the easy walk through life. There's so many ways that people can, you know, and there's so many real ways that people are suffering. But what I'm trying to say is that if we can look at these moments of pain and suffering, and try to reframe them in a way that can help us become more resilient, become more agentic, become more empathetic to the suffering of others, become more wiser. You know, when I, when this happened to me, I was fairly young. You know, I was in my 30s. I was a mother of two young children. I was very intentional and purposeful and leading a great life. And what I realized from it was I always thought that I was so... Um, Empathic and empathetic, but until my heart was ripped open, I didn't really understand what it felt like to have that profound, devastating loss. And again, would have, would not, would have much preferred not to have that lesson in that decade of my life, but it gave me so much more empathy and appreciation and tenderness for other people who were suffering. And I think it made me much uh, more wiser and kinder. Uh, Mother Teresa has this beautiful quotation, um, be kind to everyone you see because you don't know what kind of battles they're struggling with.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful song to my ears, of course. Beautiful quote to Mother Teresa. Kindness, the main message that I hear from you, it's a wisdom that brings us to this beautiful truth of kindness, being kind to ourselves and others. What a beautiful reminder. With that in mind, actually, this is a great time to talk about the work you do with um, soaring words. I'd love to hear more about that, Lisa.
2: Sure. So... Uh, During the the trifecta of trauma was that Gary died suddenly. My daddy was admitted to a top New York City hospital um, for his second bout of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the worst kind in the worst stage. And the head of oncology assured me and my mother that my father was not going to live. It would be impossible for him to survive. But in fact, he did survive for 19 years. But that happened five weeks after Gary Dad, Dad went into the hospital for a bone marrow transplant, and he was in isolation. So we made these messages and contests, and every single patient and their family and the doctors and the nurses came to my dad's room every day because they wanted to laugh or smile just for a few minutes. And what I learned from that experience is that your attitude is an integral part of healing. Fast forward, I was running an award-winning advertising and marketing company and i was launching the largest telecommunications company in the world at the largest trade show in the world and my husband called to say i need to speak to you immediately now he has a very unusual sense of humor so i thought he was pulling my leg and i said the broadway actors are about to start at you know we're at our trade show booth and i'll call you tonight i love you and he said lisa don't hang up jonathan our oldest son is catastrophically ill and you need to fly home from las vegas immediately Now, I knew he wouldn't be making a joke about that. So I flew out on the first flight, which was actually at midnight, like 10, 12 hours later. And I launched the show. And then for the next month, my son had rheumatic fever. He was seriously ill. He was twitching and drooling, heavily medicated. I became an overnight sudden caregiver. And the doctor said, get out of New York City. The hustle, the bustle, the noise, the taxis, the pollution leave the city, go be by the ocean. So we moved 12 miles away, even though New York City is an island surrounded by water. We moved to a little cottage in a little community and we lived there for four months. And During the height of my son's illness, I would walk along the beach from five to six in the morning, crying, praying, singing as the sun was coming up because the rest of the time I had to be strong for my son. I had to sleep in the same bed as him to massage his tired limbs because he would get seizures and cramps throughout the night. And the name and the feeling, soaring words, came to me from above. I had a calling on the beach, and I saw my whole life spill out in front of me, and I saw all these children and families that I saw in the pediatric cardiology waiting room in the pediatric neurology waiting room. And I knew that I was born to help these people that all the experiences in my life could help them to find that place of strength within themselves and to do simple actions that would enable them to take the next right step. So I went home after that morning walk and wrote the name Soaring Words on a little pad on my night night table. And then as my son recovered, and as I approached my 40th birthday, uh, a bunch of very seismic things happened. 9-11 happened. um, And I just decided that the time was now. So I started the not-for-profit, started writing the business plan and collaborating with leading experts in mind-body wellness and medicine, leading companies and and, uh, thought leaders, educators, hospital administrators, and just started every week creating expressive arts projects to help people do something kind for a child in the hospital because who wouldn't want to do something kind for a child in the hospital? So every week we were running to two different hospitals. We were running to schools in inner city neighborhoods. We were going to corporations, big executives at global leadership meetings, and we were inviting everyone to do something kind. And we created like 50 different activities for kids in local hospitals. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And since 2000, we've helped more than 500,000 people to take active roles to help themselves be more resilient and to help children and families. And, and then something really, again, seismic um, cha- happened, and I pivoted. In 2019, I was at a cause marketing conference, and I met the director of Jersey City Health and Human Services. And by the end of the conference, she hired me to train the amazing people that work at the Jersey City Department of Health and Human Services. It's a uh, 270,000-person city in North America, a lot of diversity, one of the three most diverse cities in North America, a lot of health inequity, and a a lot of beautiful... uh, Organizations and social service agencies really committed to serving their fellow residents. So we started doing workshops for adults, seniors, people with health inequity, marginalized communities, and then COVID happened. So we already were working with marginalized communities. We already were doing a lot of things virtually with the Zoom. So I used those two years of COVID, 2020 and 2021, to just create 23 workshops, which became the basis of the Soaring into Strength Positive Health Initiative. And those workshops have 25 of the leading experts in the world on gratitude, hope, resilience, mindfulness, laughter, positive narrative. And each person said, Lisa, here's my life's work. How can I be part of that? So that's what I'm spending my days and time doing now, Uh, you know, working with uh, governments and health and human services and companies, because one of the blessings of COVID is that now people are talking about mental illness. People are talking about depression and anxiety and getting back to what I said earlier, no one wished for a global pandemic to happen. And certainly I was working with a very large city and they were counting, you know, people who were being taken away in body bags because at the first few months and the first year of COVID, a lot of people didn't make it. They, they died because they had pre-existing conditions and they were very vulnerable, you know, health to begin with. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that COVID was a, a gift, but one of the gifts of COVID is now we can talk about these things instead of trying to sweep them under the rug. And now there's less stigma for families that do have mental health, mental illness issues in their family to be able to talk about it and hopefully get the help and support and the love that they need. So um, I feel that it's all, I'm just thinking of the infinity sign where something happens, you go to a conference, You're fully present in the moment. You sit next to the exact person that you were meant to meet. You create this collaboration. You go on to help thousands and thousands of people. So for me, living my life through faith, through being a passionary, and then through believing in synchronicity, which is I have to do Lisa. I show up fully present, rested, Hydrated, ready to go, (laughs) helpful, but honest. And then the right people come into my pathway and I can talk to them and amazing things can happen. And in the book, there's so many stories. There's 50 chapters. There's like 150 stories in there of these synchronistic, coincidental, magical things that happen. And I hope that that opens people's eyes to see that this is all around you all the time every day and to inspire people to live more um, expansively, to live more uh, more in gratitude and to just be more open to being open.
0: Yes, again, (laughs) infinitely to everything you do and everything you say, they just resonate so true to the heart. We're almost at the end. I do have a few questions for you. Sure. But before that, Liz, I do want to ask you this question. Does it always take suffering to come to these deeper understandings of ourselves in life, to deeply appreciate life, to find our purpose, our passions, and have courage, actually, to follow our hearts? Does it always take suffering or we can get there in a different way?
2: Sure. So that's a great question. Um, for me, what the suffering did was it accentuated and deepened my appreciation for the joy, which was a concept I didn't really understand when I was a little girl or younger. And I thought you're happy when you're happy. Yeah. I think yeah. the number one reason that people do suffer and that people are unhappy, whatever that means to people, is that they think that happiness is a trait. Like you have red hair, you have brown hair, you're tall, you're short. Happiness is not a trait, it's a state. It comes, it goes. And that when people are aware of the fact that there are moments in our lives when we're incredibly happy, and then there are moments in our lives when we are depleted or very unhappy or dissatisfied or suffering, that, that that is, again, part of the human condition. So I don't think that you need to uh, to find your purpose. You do not need to suffer. That would be a very um, bleak way of looking at it. Some people are just born that way. Some people have the validation. You know, you're a great artist or you're a great communicator or you're a wonderful connector. Other people, I work with a lot of, young people that are going into uh, mental health professions such as uh, public health, uh, social work, medicine, nursing. And a lot of people, in fact, 50% of those people know from a young age that they want to go into those healing professions. So I think part of it is the constellation of caring adults or people around children But it's never too late to discover your passion, your purpose. So it could be a teacher. It could be a neighbor. It could be a grandparent. It could be seeing someone, reading about someone, hearing someone, and being inspired to take on that hobby or passion or cause as your own. There's so many opportunities for us to have that moment um, of flow, have that moment of epiphany. And it doesn't necessarily have to happen on the beach, you know, in a wonderful Hollywood moment, where, you know, the wind is sweeping my hair, and I'm <laughs> fabulous, yeah. and the sun is True. coming up. Um, yes. it, it could be something really small, like you hear that sto- that small, still voice, and you just know, or it could be something that you've just fallen into, you know, half of college students when they start in college have no idea what their major is. And then one day they're in that class or they're doing a homework assignment and they say, I'll do this. So it doesn't necessarily have to have the dramatic music and the lights and the camera, (laughs) but it is a wonderful question for all of us to ask. And David Brooks, who is a best-selling author and a, um, editorialist, he talks about uh, eulogy, value, eulogy values and resume values. And the eulogy values are the things about, you know, did you enhance your life? Did you enhance the lives of others? Did you, you know, add more than you took? And, and those sort of things. We all know what the resume values are those are the titles, the accolades, the awards. And I think that, uh, as an ambitious person, as someone who wants to really do wonderful things in service of others, which also lights me up and makes me feel alive and creative and using all my talents, I think that, um, living a purposeful life means that you're using everything the, the suffering moments, the joyful moments, the chance encounters with people, the lifelong learning and curiosity so that you can have an alignment with your values and your, your loves with how you're actually living your life. You know, talk is cheap and there's something called slacktivism where, you know, you would learn about a need that needs to be addressed or something that's happening that's a crisis or a touch point in the world And people could like that on their social media. I have no tolerance for that. What is that? You're liking it? Like, how about doing something? How about taking one small action to rectify a wrong or do something to make it better for someone else? So I think that so many people now are questioning their purpose, wanting to make a difference and especially because the world does seem very fractured and broken and a little bit uh, out of control, now more than ever, this is a very important point for us to spend time with in the privacy of being alone with ourselves and our thoughts, whether that's walking around the block, driving home from work, taking a bath, really ask, what are the ways that I can be part of a solution or that I can enhance my life and the life of those around me or the life of strangers whom I'll never meet? Or how am I going to just sink in to the bottom of the bottom, become a victim, become bitter and angry, and not make anything better? I mean, I do think it's very black and white right now, and we all have an opportunity to live the best possible life that we can, given the circumstances that are happening.
0: Yes, I agree. That's one of the things, one of my favorite words, it's uh, possibilities. You just mentioned possible. So I see that the more open to life I am, which to me life is possibilities, then the more gratitude I have, the more appreciation, the more in the moment I stay. It's just incredible how... Being open to me has been the foundation mm-hmm. for finding that sense of purpose. Absolutely. So we're almost at the end, Lisa. I want to thank you again for everything that you do. I love the way you express yourself too. It's so clear. It's that the wisdom that speaks through you. It's just the most amazing thing to listen to. So thank you for being open to life in that sure. sense as well. What are three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die, if you were to choose three of
2: them? That you should love deeply and be deeply loved and to recognize that the soul is immortal. All the great faith traditions teach that. And I didn't just read it in a prayer book. In my book, there's so many examples of people who are physically no longer with us, who came to me with very concrete, impossible, specific connections. Uh, For example, my brother Gary had beautiful blue eyes, and when the Museum of Natural History, which is just a few blocks away from my home on the Upper West Side of New York City, when they had the butterfly exhibit, I knew that I had to go. So we went there and we were waiting on the line and it was like 105 degrees inside this exhibit so the butterflies would not freeze because the exhibit happened in the middle of February. And we're inside and there's all these children and everyone's excited, a sense of awe and wonder. And this enormous blue butterfly that was Mm. bigger than my fist Mm -hmm. dive-bombed onto my face Like and kissed me on the cheek. Hmm. And in case I was hallucinating, which I wasn't, (laughs) (laughs) children and grownups were pointing to me and squealing, Look, look. Hmm. And that was that happened shortly after my brother passed away. So that's what I mean by knowing that the soul is immortal. Because it could have been one of the orange or yellow butterflies. I still would have thought that was pretty special. But the fact that it was a blue butterfly. And it happened so quickly after Gary's death, um, was a confirmation bias to me. Um, and there's lots of other examples of things like that that have happened in my life. So those would be the three uh, blessings and, and, uh, gifts that I hope everyone Uh, can have the opportunity to experience.
0: Thank you so much again, Lisa, for the inspiration, uh, for opening hearts in so many different ways. And before we say goodbye for today, where can we find more information about you, your books, projects, services, and future projects?
2: Sure. So uh, the book is available online uh, on Amazon at bn.com. Ingram Spark, and it's under my name, Lisa Honig, H-O-N-I-G. And the third name is Booksbaum, B-U-K-S-B-A-U-M, Soaring Into Strength, Love Transcends Pain. And I'm happy to say that we have created a hardcover book, a paperback book, an ebook, and an amazing audiobook with an incredible actress, so if that's the way you like to uh, enjoy your books, we we have we have a Soaring into Strength, Love Transcends Pain book for however you want to enjoy it. And as we're coming up in the uh, November December holiday season, this is a time of year when anxiety and depression spikes. Traditionally, it's like what I call the New Year's Eve syndrome. Or everyone's supposed to be having a great time yeah, yeah. which in fact is, yeah. makes people um, feel their losses more the empty chair at the table perhaps so it's a wonderful gift if you know someone in your life that could use a uh, could use a warm hug could use some inspiration could laugh and cry at the same time in the same story in the same chapter but it's really uh, designed to inspire people to never give up.
0: I'll have the link on your podcast profile, the book link and your website as well. Thank you so much again, Lisa, for your presence here today. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for
2: having me. Thank you. Bye for now.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lisa Honig-Buxbaum and her work, please visit SoaringIntoStrength.com.
0: To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.